0: And then everyone else, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be in verses 25 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. It's on page 1105 of uh, the Pew Bible there. So the last couple of weeks, I've started off... Uh, started out each message with a question. Um, two weeks ago, I asked you if you've ever run out of gas as we looked at the bridesmaids. Last week, I asked you, when is Jesus coming back as we uh, looked at the talents? This week, I have another one for you. What must you do to inherit eternal life? What must you do to inherit eternal life? Honestly, there's no more important question to ask and to answer than that. We're going to do that today. So this morning we're going to look at what is arguably the most well-known of Jesus' parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Countless hospitals and charities have borrowed and used uh, the name Samaritan to uh, showcase their sacrificial service to other people those in need. This parable is well known even outside of Christian circles. Even non-believers know of the moralistic lesson of this parable. But in all fairness, they, they don't know the whole account. Most people only know verses 30 through 35. Like all the parables, there is a context to which Jesus is telling the parable. But most people only know the bit about a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and this and that. And then this forms their moral lesson that people take from it. You know, you want to know what a real Christian looks like? Looks like they say, well, love God and love your neighbor. That means helping someone whose car is broken down by the side of the road. Maybe even help pay for the repairs. Now that would be sacrificial. That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian does. Now that's not entirely wrong, but it seems to leave out quite a, quite a few things, quite a, quite a lot of things. For those of you who think you already know what this parable is about, I want to warn you, this is not Just a moralistic lesson about being kind and helping people that we don't like or or for people who are suffering. When you read this parable in its context, you'll find that there is a whole lot more going on. We're gonna push through. The enemy doesn't want us to hear this message, so you know he's gonna to try to get me coughing. So again, what is a parable? Might still be no, oh, it's not on yeah, it's still up there. Right? Yeah. What is a parable? There's a reason that we put that on the graphic. What is a parable? To truth hidden in plain sight. Jesus told these parables in a way that is sit. A a certain simple moral lesson could be learned by anyone that was listening. But the deeper meaning, the deeper meaning was hidden from them. You had to be willing to read between the lines, to look deeper, to truly understand what Jesus was teaching in them. Remember, that's what he told us. And so, what was Jesus telling in this parable? Was it just a simple moralistic lesson to to love others sacrificially? Well, I think you know the answer to that now. No, that's not what this parable was really about. So let's start by reading through the entire account, not just the narrow narrow parable, but starting in verse 25. We'll look at some context and see what we can learn from Jesus. So read with me Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So let's, let's step back and, and, and back up a little bit and look at the parable in context of what is going on. As this story unfolds, Jesus is in the final months of his earthly ministry. He set his eyes on Jerusalem, where where his eventual crucifixion awaits him. But as he makes his way, he blankets Judea's towns and and villages with a message of eternal life, calling people to be his true disciples. He's fed the 5,000. He's told them to pick up their cross and to follow him. But despite his powerful preaching and and the miraculous signs, only a small number of people actually believe and embrace the gospel. Most reject the call to to humble themselves, to repent of their sins and and self-righteousness, to receive complete forgiveness, to enter the kingdom of God by faith. They would not accept Christ's message because they would not admit they are wretched sinners on their way to eternal destruction. Like many today, that refusal also denies them the only cure. Now, the unnamed scribe in this parable had an unbelievably rare privilege. Having a conversation about eternal life, with the one who is eternal life. So let's go through this parable a bit at a time, and then we'll look at some lessons for us. What is Jesus really trying to teach us here? So again, the scene begins at verse 25. And behold, the lawyer stood up, up, stood up to put him to the test, saying, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" <clears throat> the scene starts out, starts out uh, during a time when Jesus was teaching. As we read the New Testament, we see many examples of of Jesus doing this. He would teach in in large groups and in small groups and and sometimes one-on-one. He never missed an opportunity to engage personally with someone who was seeking answers. And this is one of those occasions. Jesus is teaching and everyone would have been sitting. Sitting and listening. That's how they would have taught back then. Everyone would have have been sitting down on the ground. Those days, teachers customarily sat. The listeners would would sit on the ground around him. If somebody wanted to answer a question, they would stand up. You know, we we raise our hands. They would stand up in the class. And they would wait for the teacher to call on them, to recognize them. It was a sign of respect. If you had something to say, stand up in front of the whole class and say it. Ask it. When the teacher recognized you, you you would ask your question. That's what this man does. He stands up and, and he asks Jesus a bit of a loaded question. It says a lawyer, but it means theologian. He's an expert in the Old Testament law. He's not a lawyer like He argues criminal cases. No, he's an expert in the law. He's a theologian. He's a scribe that has studied the law, the Psalms and the prophets. It's his business to know and understand the Mosaic law. Now there is some debate on whether this man was sincere or not. Some people take the issue with that he wanted to test Jesus. That like, He was like the other Jewish uh, religious leaders that were just looking for a way to trip Jesus up. He wasn't really asking, he was trying to be a smart aleck in class. But others say he was showing respect, calling Jesus teacher. And his question was not generic, it wasn't, what must a person do, Jesus? It was personal, it was, what do I have to do? So, motive aside, the question is important. And it's perhaps the most important question there is. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? To be right in God's sight, to enter heaven, to be saved. What do I have to do? But instead of answering the question, Jesus turns the question back on him. Verse 26, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? You're an expert in the law. How do you read it? What do you understand it to say? You recite it to me. That's really what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you recite the law back to me. How do you read it? Jesus is actually referring to the Jewish profession of faith, the Shema. It was the core of the law. Love God and love others. And every good Jewish person would recite this twice a day. In the morning and at night. So you'd memorize it. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the second clause is from Leviticus 19.18. And love your neighbor as yourself that, that encapsulated the entirety of the law in fact Jesus gave the same answer when asked a similar question Matthew 22, 35-40 and one of them a lawyer again asked him a question to test him teacher, which is the greatest commandments in the law? and he said to him you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Those two things. If you don't do those two things, then everything else is for nothing. These two commandments sum up the ten, the ten commandments. The, the first half um, describes how to love God, and the, the second half describes how to, to love one another. Now Luke writes, the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus a follow-up question. And who is my neighbor? What does it mean to justify yourself? To be justified is to be innocent, to be found not guilty, to have met a standard, met a standard of righteousness in this case. A man wants to be sure that he is cleared the spiritual hurdle. He must to make sure that he's in the clear. And so he asked Jesus for clarification of who his neighbor is. See, the religious elite taught that your neighbor was your fellow Israelite. You were to love and act in love toward your fellow Jewish man or woman. But you were under no obligation toward others outside of the nation of Israel, especially your enemies. That was the prevailing... Purvey- thought taught by the Pharisees remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew 5.43 you have heard that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I said you love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you see Jesus had, had confronted that messed up thinking before but that was, that was the thought that people had in their head my neighbor is, is my fellow Israelite my fellow Christian brother And so this expert in the law undoubtedly felt that he had measured up to God's standard for love. Because he loved his Jewish neighbors. So he must be good, right? Be like all of us sitting here saying, you must love everyone at Faith Chapel. Okay, I love everyone at Faith Chapel, so I'm good, right? And he wanted to see if Jesus would agree with him. He wanted Jesus to sign off on that lowered bar of responsibility. He wanted to justify himself, but he only exposed his self-righteousness. But Jesus responds to this man by telling a parable. Verses 30-32, let's read those. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now this would have been an easily identifiable story for everyone listening. Most of them listening would have traveled this road at one time or another. It was a a 17 miles downhill from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was through very rough and and desolate terrain. The road was notoriously dangerous with many hiding places for robbers. It was was so dangerous, it was sometimes referred to as the way of blood. How would you like that as a nickname for a road, huh? the way of blood, because of how many people would be robbed on it. And as everyone who's listening to the story would have anticipated, that's exactly what happens to this man in the story. He was robbed, he's beaten, and he's, he's left half dead. Of course. What else do you expect going down that road by yourself? But then two, two men walk by. First a priest, then a Levite. Priests served in the temple, and among their, their duties, they would offer sacrifices for the people. The Levites also served in the temple, but more uh, doing operational duties, assisting the priest and, and doing security and, and maintenance and, and things like that. Now those listening, this this would have been a ray of hope. The best possible news for this, for this, this man. Now by chance. Oh how lucky for this poor guy. This poor guy going down this road by chance. A priest and a Levite. Good news. Temple priests were the the paragons of of spiritual virtue and and godliness. The the Levites were intimately involved in the religious system. I mean, both men would have been very familiar with the Old Testament passages about loving your neighbor and loving mercy and doing justice to those suffering. I mean, if anybody would know, I mean, these these men were even responsible for for uh, for giving out the distributing the handouts to the poor in Israel. I mean, they knew they knew the responsibility, but despite this, both men intentionally crossed to the other side of the road instead of stopping to help the injured man. But why do you think they passed by? Why do you think they passed by? It Doesn't say, but I can think of three reasons. First is contamination. They might have believed this man was already dead. If they touched a dead body, the law said that they would be contaminated they would be ceremonially unclean. Then They would have to return to Jerusalem and, 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 and for a cleansing ritual to become fit for service again. I mean, you know how much time that would take to turn around and go all the way back to Jerusalem, go through this purification process, turn around and head back to wherever they were heading? I mean, their service to God must be more important than helping this guy Safety. Maybe they didn't stop because they were afraid of, for their own safety. I mean, maybe it's a trap. Maybe it's a trap, and his buddies are just waiting. They're hiding behind the bushes, just waiting for you to stop and help this guy. And then they jump out, and they got you. Maybe it's a trap. or maybe the robbers are still close by. What if they come back? They get out of here. Or entanglement. Maybe they just knew it would just be too complicated to get involved. I mean, what would they have to do to help this guy? How would they get him to safety? What if, what if the man lived in the opposite direction of where they were heading? They would have to go way out of their way to, to take him there. I mean, how much time and money is this going to cost? I mean, I've got things to do and places to be. Well, it's, it's probably best to, to just leave the man and hope that someone else will show up and help him. Whatever the reason, both of these religious temple representatives pass on by the wounded Israelite but that's not the end of the story verses 33 through 37 let a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine then he set about his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him Next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whenever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The priest and the Levite pass by, but a Samaritan stops to help. He bandages his wounds. He, he probably had to tear his own clothes to make bandages, to, to, to wrap up this guy. He uses his own first aid kit of, of, of wine as an antiseptic and oil as a balm to, to sanitize and to seal the wounds of this man. He puts the injured man on his own donkey, even though it means that he will be walking the rest of the way. Brings the man to an inn, he spends the night with him to take care of him. And in the morning he gives the innkeeper enough money for two months, room and board. Take care of him. Whatever he needs. Whatever he needs. If you need more, I'll pay you when I come back through. The lands the Samaritan goes to for this stranger are impressive enough. But it comes even more impressive when you understand who the Samaritans were. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And they hated the Jews in return. The Samaritans were the descendants of of Jews who had intermarried with non-Jewish people during the exile. The Jews considered them to be half-breeds. Religious heretics who had taken their religion and mixed it with these pagans. In fact, when the Pharisees want to insult Jesus in John eight forty eight forty eight, they say, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I mean, that was an insult. The Jews hated the Samaritans and looked down on them. Those listening would have been shocked. To hear a Samaritan, a Samaritan raised up as the example of neighborly love and virtue. I mean, that's like an American hearing a a member of Al-Qaeda as a hero of the story. Could you imagine? Jesus ends the story by asking the expert in the law a question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? this man can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. No, he says, the one who showed him mercy, the one, can't even say the Samaritan. Jesus told him, you go, do likewise. Jesus tells the man that loving his neighbor means loving like the Samaritan. To be willing to inconvenience yourself, risk your own safety, to bear the cost for anyone who is in need, even your enemy. But as I I said in the beginning, the main point of this passage is not really a moralistic lesson about loving your neighbor. What was the question the parable was told in response to? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So let me share three important implications from this passage. The lesson. First, the impossible standard. Remember what the theological answer to that question was? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Then love your neighbor as yourself. Boil down the Ten Commandments, the sum of God's law, to two commands. Love God. Desire Him above all other people and things. Serve Him with your whole heart, soul, your strength, your mind. Devote your life to Him. Every ounce of your life, of your being, completely and utterly devoted to God. Then love your neighbors yourself, care for others, meet their needs with the same intentionality and fervency that you do your own. Both are all encompassing, self denying, sacrificial love. Jesus tells this man, do this, and you will live. You will have eternal life. But is Jesus actually saying this is the way to become a Christian? No. So why we need to pay attention to the, the flow of the whole account. You see what Jesus is saying in, concept, in context? you answered correctly, he says. Anyone who meets that standard lives. Meet that standard, and you don't need grace. All you have to do is be perfect. All you have to do is be perfect. Go ahead. Try. Try to do it yourself. Just keep the ten. Just the ten. Not just for a day or two, but until the day you die. Do that, and you will live. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I want to ask you, how many of the ten have you broken this morning? Before you even got to church? Now, remember how Luke put it. But he, desired to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? He was hoping the answer would be to treat your fellow Jew with kindness. He wanted the answer to be achievable. One that would let him believe that he had met God's expectations of him. Well, that's our tendency, too, when we're faced with the evidence that we've fallen short. We look for ways to justify ourselves. Romans 10.3 says of us, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's. Righteousness. We try to do it ourselves. We compare ourselves to others. Compared to them, I'm pretty good. But Jesus will have none of that. Instead, Jesus sets the bar even higher. He doesn't care that you're a good Christian. Compared to the rest of the world, that you're good. Compared to the rest of the people in this church, you're even better than them. No, he sets the bar even higher. Loving your neighbor needs to be willing to inconvenience yourself. Risk your own safety. Bear the cost for anyone in need, even your enemy. Now, it doesn't say how this man responded. How should he have How should he have responded? How should he, he have responded? By throwing his hands up and saying, that's impossible, Jesus. That's impossible. That's an impossible standard. I can't do that. Even if I love one person that way. Do you know how many more are suffering in this world? I can't go around doing that to everyone. Not every day. I mean, some days I'm, I'm probably not going to feel like it, especially for my enemy. How can anyone love this way? It's impossible. And if he would have responded that way, he would have gotten the point. Yes, the law tells us to love God perfectly. With all our heart, all our soul, strength and our mind. It tells us to love your neighbor with the same intentionality and fervency that you meet your own needs. But no one, no one measures up to that. And that's the point. That's the point. No one can can attain that. When we confess our inability to measure up to God's law, When we stop trying to justify ourselves, then we're able to receive God's transformative grace. Grace that will truly help us to love God, to love our neighbor. That's why it's so important to read the story in its context. If the parable of the Good Samaritan is simply a moralistic lesson about being good to people that are hard to love, we will all fail miserably. Or like the expert in the law, we'll try to find a way to justify ourselves. We'll grade ourselves on the curve, lower the standards, so that we can assure ourselves that we've met God's standard. But Jesus holds up the law as a mirror to this man to show him how far he falls short of it. He only stands condemned under it. Make no mistake, God does not grade on a curve. No, Jesus says this about loving your neighbor, Matthew 5, 43-48. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. Be perfect, that's all. You go now. Be perfect. Go and be perfect. And you'll have eternal life. James says something that is just as daunting, James two ten, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. You can keep every law, in the Old Testament. If you break one, poof, you failed. It's over. Don't get to get a 99.9%. 100%. Pass or fail. Do you really think you can fulfill the law and love the way God requires? No matter how hard you may try, despite your best efforts, you do not measure up to God's standard of love for your neighbor. Jesus was being tested by an expert in the law who was trying to show how he cleared God's hurdle of righteousness. But instead of patting this man on the back, Jesus raises the bar to an impossible height. You are in the same boat before God. Despite your best efforts, you cannot measure up to God's standard. Romans 3, 19-24 Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced, the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through, re- through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The law is an impossible standard, but there is good news. Jesus meets the standard both in his love for God and his love for you. In this parable, Jesus says that loving your neighbor means to be willing to inconvenience yourself, to risk your own safety, to bear the cost for anyone who is in need, even your enemy. This is impossible for any of us to do consistently, to to the level that God requires of it. But there is one, there is one who did this perfectly. See, there's one important detail that I haven't mentioned yet. Remember that man's original question, who is my neighbor? But Jesus answers a, a subtly different question, which he poses at the end. Which one was a neighbor to the man in need? In other words, who is acting neighborly? Why does this matter? Why does this matter that the question was changed? Well, think about it. Think about it. If you were answering the question, Who is my neighbor? then it would have made more sense to, to make the story a bit different. You would have made it about a Samaritan traveling who is beaten and left for dead. And a good Israelite comes along finds the Samaritan and cares for him. That would have been the straightforward answer. Who is my neighbor? Your neighbor is is everyone, even your enemy. Good lesson. Got it, Jesus. Thank you. But Jesus, instead, Jesus tells the story with a twist. He puts the Israelite beaten and bloodied on the road. And the Samaritan... On the donkey. In doing this, Jesus makes the man identify not with the Samaritan, but with the Israelite, bleeding on the road. And then he has someone who owes him nothing, who should have seen him as an enemy, come and show him mercy. So instead of being a simple moralistic lesson, the story becomes what happens when someone who owes you nothing sacrifices himself for you as an act of mercy and grace. See, here's the thing. You are not the Samaritan. You are not the Samaritan in this story. You are the man lying in the road, beaten, bruised, close to death. And your only hope for survival is an act of grace and mercy from someone who owes you nothing but rejection because of how you treated him. So the world question of the story becomes, what if you were saved by someone who owed you nothing but rejection? See, this is the genius of Jesus. Instead of just telling me a moralistic story about loving others, even enemies, he tells it so that we can identify with a man bleeding in the road, dying, desperate need of mercy. Recognizing this, that this is you, that this is you, that this is who you are, has the power to transform you so that you can actually love your neighbor. We're like the man on the road, beaten by our sin, left for dead. But Jesus did not leave us to die, but he had mercy on us. He did not just inconvenience himself. He he left the majesty of heaven to come down and, and suffer and die on a cross. He was not just willing to risk his own safety. He laid down his life. Dying in our place. Taking the punishment we deserved. And he was willing to bear an enormous cost. The wrath of the Father and our sin for us while we were still his enemies. Romans five, six through eight, For while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. While we were enemies. See, you are not the good Samaritan. You are not the good Samaritan. You are the man bleeding on the road, left for dead in need of mercy. You've been saved at great cost by the one you had offended, even though you deserved to be left for dead. Christ perfectly lived and fulfilled God's law. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our inability to measure up. For all who confess their inability to measure up and look to Jesus, there is forgiveness and righteousness, a way to be right with God. That, that is the way to inherit eternal life. Now go, now go and love like Jesus. Now and only now that you understand the true point of this passage, that the love God requires is a standard that none of us has met, that the consequence of our sin is that we are like the man lying in the road close to death. But Jesus, in his mercy, has saved, saved us at great cost to himself. Now and only now can you truly apply the moralistic lesson. Go and love like Jesus does. Not in order to gain his approval, not out of guilt or fear, but because you have been loved, because you have been saved, because you have eternal life, all your heart could ever desire, forever and ever. So go and love as he loved you. Be willing to inconvenience yourself to risk your own safety, to bear the cost for anyone who is in need, even your enemy. Know that your salvation depends on how, doesn't depend on how you do in loving others, but on his perfect record. We do this out of response for what he has done for us. We love because he loved us first. The religious man asks, who is my neighbor? And the answer is clear. There are no limits to neighborly love. The neighbor is any person in need, whose need you can see, whose need you can meet, even your enemy. Love is sacrificial in action. It's interrupting your schedule, expending your money, risking your safety and your reputation, ruining your property, even for a stranger, even for an enemy so that you can do what's best for them. 1 John 316 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does love, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Either put up or shut up. The call is to love as as extravagantly as you have been loved. To show the same grace and mercy as Christ showed us. We were the ones left, beaten, bloody, dying on the road and he, the one that we despised the one that the world despises comes when everyone else when religion looks the other way has no ability no desire to save you He comes. And you deserve nothing but scorn for the way you have treated Him. Yet He shows you mercy and compassion. And He sacrificed Himself to save you. And He continues to save you. Whatever they need, I'll take care of it. He continues to supply your needs even to this day. When you understand, you were the man laying in the road. He is the good Samaritan. When you truly understand that, then, then you can truly love him And love your neighbor. May we do that to everyone we meet. May the Lord help us to be a blessing to someone today, every day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that you teach us thank you that you recognize who we are, our self-righteousness, our desire to to justify ourselves. Yet you see through all of that, in spite of how we have treated you, mocking and scorn and rejecting you, you You have come and showed us great grace and mercy when we deserve nothing but rejection. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for that incredible grace and mercy that you have shown us. May you help us to realize that you are the good Samaritan. We were the one left for dead until you rescued us. Now may we take that same grace and mercy that you showed us, and may we show that to others. May we be a light in the world that would point everyone to you. Pray that you would help us to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, dying for us, for saving us. Amen.